Well, hello again to everybody. We're going to dive into Mark chapter 2, and actually we're going to study all the way into like the first 12 verses of chapter 3 this morning. But before we dive into that, I do just kind of want to repeat what I said at the beginning of the service, which was a welcome to our guests. And uh, to go even one step further, I just want you to know that if you're a guest with us here today, whether you've come with friends or family or you're from the neighborhood or whatever, we love that you're a guest. We're really happy you're here. We don't want you to always feel like a guest, right? So our hope is that over time you feel like family and this is home to you. And to that end, we actually have a guest gift. Uh, the ushers are going to come down the aisle. If you'll grab their attention, this has information about our church. It's got one of the Mark journals, which you can use for this study we're in. Uh, there's, I, one of the things I've said before is that there's a free cup of coffee in there. My wife stopped me last week and she was like, quit saying it's a free cup of coffee. She's like, a free cup of coffee is what, like 25 cents? Like it makes you sound cheap. What she wants me to say is, there's a free specialty coffee for you in that kit, right? Oh, that could be a latte or a huckleberry mocha or who knows what, right? So uh, there is a gift for you in there, which is a fancy coffee, should you like it. But you can also have that 25 cents cup of coffee if you want. I'm not trying to be cheap. I'm trying to be nice. That's what I'm trying to do. Anyway, so you grab their attention. They'll give you that kit. There's also people at the Connect Wall. We'd love to talk with you after the service, but we're really happy that you're here. Now, you're catching us. Uh, in the middle of a study in the book of Mark called Simply Jesus. We're working our way through. We'll be in the study of Mark all the way until Easter with a little break for Christmas. This morning we find ourselves in Mark chapter 2. And much like the rest of the book, there are a rapid series of vignettes, sort of short uh, stories, really quick. It's almost like looking at a slideshow. These really quick sort of captures. There are five stories in the section we're studying today. Between Mark 2.1 and Mark 3.12, there are five stories and then kind of a synopsis at the end of that section. And we'll get to that in a second. But I want to just sort of maybe challenge you with your perspective a little bit before we dive into these stories. What we're going to see in each of these stories is that in each one of these little glimpses we get, there are people in the crowd who are disoriented or a little frustrated or maybe angry or bothered by the things that Jesus does or sometimes the things that Jesus doesn't do. So they might be bothered by his action or his inaction. Sometimes they're bothered by the things that he says or the way in which he says them. But in every case, you get sort of this broad response to Jesus. And many times when we read a story like this, uh, our temptation is to side with Jesus. And that's a good temptation, right? So as Christians, you read a story about Jesus and you want to be like, Jesus is the one in this story that knows what's going on. He's the good guy. And what can happen is you go like these people who are confused by Jesus or who are frustrated by Jesus or who are angry with Jesus, like they're the bad guys and we reject their position and whatever. Like I, I totally get that. And I will say that in each of these cases, those people are wrong. And Jesus, I think, very lovingly and graciously works to correct the way in which they're thinking about the situation. But what I want to say to you as we walk into it is I'd like you for the sake of the study this morning to put yourself in the shoes of the people who are witnessing Jesus' action or inaction or the things that he says and does that they don't like. These are people who aren't naturally just enemies of Jesus. They haven't decided to be enemies. In fact, many times they're watching him because they're intrigued by him or they have questions and then they do something or they see him do something, excuse me, that flies in the face of their tradition. It flies in the face of what they've always been taught because of their religion, because of their upbringing, because of their education, because of their culture, because of the things that their, their leaders and their rabbis have taught them before. All of a sudden, Jesus does a thing that they are well within their rights to say, this is wrong. 
This guy just did a thing that is wrong. He just said a thing you're not allowed to say. He just made an assumption that you can only make about God or whatever. In each one of these cases, you'll do yourself a disservice if you read the story and go, Jesus is the good guy, and these people who argue with him, they're all evil, and we just need to be done with their part of the story. Because the point in giving us these snapshots is not only to help us see where those people are coming from, but to understand the way in which Jesus lovingly and graciously corrects their view. Uh, as you can tell by looking at me, I am a, uh, I'm a guy who wears eyeglasses, and now I'm at the stage in my life as an older person where every couple of years I gotta go and get my prescription done again. That means I'm gonna have to buy new glasses, right, and do that whole thing all over. But I have certain styles of glasses that I like, and I have a certain manufacturer that I like to get my glasses from, and so when I buy new glasses, a lot of times they come and they look just like my old glasses, except the lenses have changed. They come in the very same case that my old glasses came in, and they sit on my dresser, and if I don't get rid of the old ones and recycle them, there are new glasses and old glasses sitting on the cabinet together. And as you can probably tell by looking at me, I get dressed in the dark most days. And so, uh, when I go, there, there have been occasions, and in fact, I remember kind of a funny moment a year and a half ago or so when I got my new, my, these prescriptions. Um, when I got these new glasses, there was a moment where I got up in the morning and I got my shower, I'm getting ready, you know, do all that stuff. And then I just start to feel like something is really wrong with me, right? I feel a little bit dizzy. I wonder if maybe there's a problem with my inner ear. I'm not, I like, I just feel like I'm not even probably safe to walk down the stairs because it feels like the floor isn't sitting in the place where it's supposed to sit. And I think I might be really, really sick. Like I might need to go to the hospital. I might have a brain tumor. I don't know what's going on. And then it dawns on me that I got new glasses and that what I'd actually done is I'd grabbed the old glasses that looked like the new glasses but that don't work with my eyes anymore, right? And if you're wearing the wrong lenses, if you're wearing the wrong lenses, it sort of wrecks the way you see everything. Everything feels disorienting. It, feel, it can feel like something is deeply and wrongly broken if you have the wrong lenses on. In essence, what Jesus does in each one of these vignettes is it's kind of like he reaches out and he says, I understand why you're wearing the glasses you're wearing, but I am new glasses. So I want to be really careful with that analogy. Jesus isn't saying I want to give you new glasses. What he's saying is I am a new lens through which you have to see everything you've learned and everything you'll learn in the future and every place you go and every person you meet, everything you think you are and everything you think you know has to be reseen through the lens that is me, Jesus says. Does that make sense? So story after story, and we're going to move through them kind of rapidly. You can go back and study them more on your own. But in each case, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the people who are disoriented by Jesus because the reason they're disoriented is a really good reason. They're disoriented because they think they understand what they believe and they've been taught certain things and they hold true to those things and they understand who they are and how the world works and how God works. And in each case, when they express frustration with Jesus, they do so because of the lenses they're wearing, right? And Jesus is trying to bring in a new way to see the world. So story after story, we'll start here in verses uh, one through 12. Here's what it says. It says, when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Uh, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. They came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay, right? So um, something, you, you probably heard this story before if you've been around the church for a little while. For some of you, it might be new, but Jesus is teaching, and what Mark tells us is that this is likely Jesus' house, which is interesting. When you think about the roof getting removed when the guy gets lowered down on the mat, 
it says here that Jesus was at his home. So whatever that means to you, maybe it doesn't matter at all, maybe, you know, whatever. But Jesus is teaching, and there's so many people there that you can't even get in through the door. There are these four men who care about this paralytic man who can't walk. They want this paralytic man to come into contact with Jesus because they want him to be healed, right? There are these stories moving around the countryside of the supernatural work that Jesus is capable of, and they think this guy, because he can't walk, is never gonna get to Jesus. We're gonna have to work together to take him to Jesus to be transformed. Their faith catalyzes this action. They bring him on the mat, they can't get him through the door, they go up on the roof, they peel the roof away, they lower him down. And you know what they're expecting. What they're expecting is that Jesus will say when he sees their faith, hey, I love the way you're loving your friend. Now he can walk. Huzzah, right? And it'll be this beautiful moment. That's what they all wanted. That's what the paralytic wanted. And that's what his four friends wanted. What Jesus does is something different. And it's a little disorienting, right? It says in verse five, when Jesus saw their faith, the men who were lowering him down through the roof, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. What? Your sins are forgiven? Like, that's not why we brought him here. His legs don't work, right? Make his legs work, right? Like, it's nice of you to be gracious to him and to absolve him of the things that he's done that are wrong, but the dude can't walk, right? Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes, here are these people that I want you to feel some solidarity with. Some of the scribes, these are people who because of their background and their faith and their education and their upbringing and their history and experience and culture, they have a problem with this, right? Verse seven. Some of the scribes were sitting there, verse six, questioning in their hearts, verse seven, they, they were asking themselves, why does this man speak like that? It's inappropriate. It is inappropriate for Jesus to say to somebody, your sins are forgiven, because, it says here, he is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? These aren't evil people. These aren't bad people. These aren't just Jesus haters who were looking for him to slip up. These are people who, because of their background and their training and their education and everything they've been taught and everything they understand about God and their world and their faith, when a man says your sins are forgiven, that man has just done a thing that only God's allowed to do. Men are not allowed to forgive each other's sins. Only God's allowed to forgive each other's sins. So when Jesus says it, they have this rumble in their tummies that says, I don't know if I should be sitting here where this guy's teaching this thing because only God forgives sins and this guy isn't God. Now it's interesting that Jesus doesn't begin by healing the man's legs, but that he forgives his sins. It's interesting that Jesus does this because one of the things we know about Jesus is that he sees the greatest need. What this man needs more than he needs his legs to work is to be forgiven of his sin. Also, it's worth noting that Jesus leads with the forgiveness of sins because he's trying to teach the people in the room about the very nature of who he is. In their hearts, when they look at him and they say, it's blasphemy for you to say somebody's sins are forgiven because only God can forgive sins. In one way, it's true that Jesus is kind of saying, yes, I agree, only God can forgive sins. What does that tell you about me? I'm the same as him, right? We are the same. Jesus is trying to paint a picture for them, but he can tell that they're stirring and rumbling in their hearts, right? It says uh, immediately, verse eight, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves. So G they don't say this out loud in this particular case. Jesus perceives in his spirit that they're all bothered by what they perceive to be his blasphemy, right? Aligning himself with, with who God is. And perceiving that, he says to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? 
He says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Here's the question he's asking. He said, if I look at a guy and say your sins are forgiven, you don't have any way to prove whether they are or aren't. I could say that to anybody, and you, for looking from the outside, you don't know whether his sins are forgiven or not. It's actually easier for me to say your sins are forgiven than it is to say, stand up and walk. Because if I say stand up and walk, and the paralytic man after that can only lay there, just like he could only lay there before, it proves that I'm powerless. But he says, in order to show you that the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sins, I'll do the harder one. And he says to the paralytic man, rise up, take your mat, and go home. And the man does, right? What's Jesus doing? Well, it's interesting. He, his association with the Son of Man in this text is striking. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. For the scribes and the, and the educated Jewish people that would have been in the room, they would reference that phrase, son of man, with a messianic title in Daniel chapter 7. Interestingly, in Daniel chapter 7, when it talks about the son of man, this messianic figure, it says that he's given dominion by God for judgment, right? That's the sentiment of Daniel 7, that the son of man has power and authority for judging, what Jesus says here is, just so you'll know that I am, I am the son of man and that I have that same authority, I'm bringing forgiveness. You see how he's changing their lenses. He's taking the things they know and he's showing them what's right about it and what's wrong about it. He's kind of blowing up their paradigms. He forgives the sin, which was not what they wanted, but what they actually needed. And he shows them that he is capable of doing something that only God can do. Let's move on to the next story. Look at this in verse, uh, well, I should show you here really quick in 12. He rose immediately, picked up his bed, went out before them. They were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. As a little side note, um, that's actually really important, but just as a side note to this text, everything Jesus does and everything that he says and everything he's working towards is the glory of God. That's his objective all the time. Just, just like for us, but notice that God is glorified because of the work that he does in this particular man's life. Now, next snapshot. This is story number two, verse 13. It says, Jesus went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And Levi stood, rose and followed him, right? And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many tax collectors and sinners who followed him. And scribes, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with tax collectors and sinners, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners, right? Now again, I want you to put yourself in their shoes. This was unheard of, right? The scribes of the Pharisees had been working really hard to set themselves apart as knowledgeable men, as educated men, as holy men. People who didn't mingle with people who were sinners, right? And tax collectors, people who were traitors to Israel, right? They're not interacting with those people. And so when they see Jesus doing this thing, they're disoriented because of their background and their training and what they understood about themselves, what they understood about their, their scriptures, what they understood about their world. And so they're disoriented. They go to the disciples and they say, why is he doing this? We thought he was a good guy. We thought he was a rabbi. We thought he was actually a man of God. Now he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Now, for us in the room, I don't know about you, I love the fact that Jesus is sitting with tax collectors and sinners. That means there's a place for me at the table, right? In fact, when I think about this story, and we don't have a photograph of this, but someday I hope to see the replay, maybe on the heavenly DVR or whatever. When I envision this story, I envision it that at the table Jesus is reclining at with tax collectors and sinners, that there are some empty seats, and in this text, when Jesus perceives the people saying, why is he doing this thing you're not supposed to do? Why is he eating with these rotten sinner people? That Jesus says, it's not the healthy people who need a doctor, it's the sick 
I've come to heal the sick. I, I imagine him gesturing at those empty seats, right? Because when he says, I've come to heal the sick, he's not saying, you holy people out there are not my business, and these sinners in here are. He's not affirming their they're sort of uh, the way in which they're setting themselves apart. What he's saying is, I came to heal sinners, and what you don't realize is that means I came for everybody, right? There is room at my table for the tax collector, and there's room at my table for the scribe of the Pharisee. The good news for us is that Jesus changes the lenses that they're wearing. The lenses they're wearing say you don't associate with wicked people. Jesus says, no, I, I, I can only associate with wicked people or I can't associate with anybody, right? I've come to the earth to interact with sinners because they're the ones who need help. If you're looking for righteous people, Jesus says, there aren't any except for me. Jesus says, I haven't come to, to hang out with the healthy, but I'm, I'm here to heal the sick. He changes their lens, right? Let's move on to the third story. This is verse 18. Third slideshow, third snapshot here. It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now this is an interesting question. It's interesting, it brings up John the Baptist's disciples here, so they're in view. Um, I will say to you that, that there's really, in, in Jewish law, in the Old Testament law, there's really only one official time every year when the Jewish people had to fast, when it was required of them. There are a couple of other festivals and places where that had come in, but in their tradition, so now we're just talking about first century religious tradition, the Pharisees and the spiritual people would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. That's not found in the Old Testament. That's not something that was prescribed by Old Testament law. It's just a thing that they all sort of agreed together like, this is what good Jews do, right? Good Jews fast on Mondays and Thursdays. And so, when the people see that, yeah, here are John the Baptist's disciples and they're fasting like good Jews, and here are the disciples of the Pharisees, which is interesting because historically we don't really have a record that Pharisees had disciples, so that's an interesting note in this particular text. But they're looking at the Pharisees and the followers of the Pharisees and they're looking at John the Baptist and not, they're not looking at him because at this point he is either in jail, we know he's either in jail or he's already dead. John the Baptist is either deceased or locked up. They're looking at these people and they're saying, why aren't you doing the holy thing? All the holy people, they don't eat on Mondays and Thursdays and your disciples don't do that, right? And again, I want you to put yourself in their shoes. They're feeling this, uh, they're feeling this sense of discomfort. They're feeling uncomfortable because in their minds, their upbringing, their culture, everything in current trends says, good holy people don't eat on Mondays and Thursdays. And Jesus seems like a holy guy, but he's not doing the thing that our culture says you have to do if you're a good guy. So they say, what's happening? Now, Jesus gives a series of three, three quick stories, and we're going to look at them at length at the end. But he gives three quick stories which kind of unlock all five of these stories. So we might have talked in the first couple of weeks about what's called a Markan sandwich. I don't want you to get too distracted on that, but commentators will talk in the book of Mark about the fact that he will tell a series of stories and that sometimes there's a story in the middle. It's kind of like the meat in a sandwich that unlocks the story before and the story after, right? This is a, an example of that. There is an illustration right in the middle of these five stories that is the key to unlocking all five of the stories. Jesus tells three different quick illustrations. One of them has to do with the wedding. He says, my disciples aren't fasting because they've got the bridegroom with them. And when you're at a wedding celebration, you don't fast. You eat a lot and you drink a lot and you party. Like this is, it's party time for my disciples because the bridegroom is here. Now he's drawing a line between himself and God again. 
because the Hebrew people saw themselves as God's bride. We see that picture in the Old Testament. We even saw some of that when we were studying the minor prophets. Jesus is saying, I am the bridegroom. So at one level, he's saying I'm God. But more importantly, he's saying my disciples aren't just gonna fast because everybody says they have to fast. They're gonna pay attention to the situation they're in. They're gonna pay attention to the circumstance. They're gonna pay attention to the timing, right? And the timing is such right now that the Messiah has come and nobody feels like mourning. Nobody feels like suffering or hitting themselves on the back with chains. Everybody feels like partying because the bridegroom's here. You've all been to wedding celebrations. That's the way it's supposed to feel. They're reading this thing correctly. He says, now there is a day when the bridegroom will be taken away and my disciples will fast then. This would have been relevant, again, for the disciples of John the Baptist who were fasting because their, their rabbi had just been taken away and was either executed at that time or he was in prison. So it would have been very relevant to them. When Jesus says, I will be taken away, the bridegroom will be taken away, I think what he's talking about there is the season between his ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit. I would not say that you and I live in a time period in which the bridegroom has been taken away from us. I would say in, in very distinct and beautiful measure, we have Jesus with us all the time because of the presence of his spirit. So Jesus isn't talking about a time of mourning that includes our age. He's talking about a narrow window of time after the death and resurrection, ascension of Jesus before the spirit comes. And he goes, if they wanna feel sad then because I'm gone, that'll make sense. But it sure doesn't make sense right now because I'm right here with them. He tells two other stories. One has to do with an old jacket that has a hole in it. And he says, if you sew up an old jacket with new cloth, when you wash it, that new cloth that hasn't been shrunk is gonna shrink and it's gonna actually tear the jacket worse. He tells a third story, which is about wineskins. And he says, if you take new wine and you put it in old wineskins that are brittle and have been used for a while, when that fermentation process happens and the gases expand that wineskin, if it's an old wineskin with new wine in it, the wineskin will itself explode and you'll lose the wineskin and the wine. What you need for new wine is a whole new wineskin, right? That's the only way that will have the flexibility to expand during fermentation. We'll, we'll come back to it in a second. But I want you to feel the people's discomfort. I want you to feel their frustration. Their frustration comes because they think they understand how things work. Good people fast on Mondays and Thursdays. And Jesus says, I kind of want to switch out your glasses. I want to switch out your lenses. Let's look at the fourth story. Let's keep going. Very similarly in verse 23, Mark 2, 23, it says, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. That might not seem like a big deal to you, but remember, the Jewish people were not allowed to work on the Sabbath, and technically, in their laws, they believed that if you harvested grain, that was work, and you were in violation. So the disciples doing this was disorienting to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were saying to Jesus, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They're breaking the rules. That's not a thing good people do. Everybody knows that. Here's Jesus' answer in 25. He said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? He points them back to this story of David who broke the law because of his great need. Now, again, something interesting Jesus is doing, he's now comparing himself to King David during the time period, because this story happens during the time period when David had been anointed to be king, but not yet crowned to be king. Interestingly, Jesus has been anointed to be king by the presence of his Holy Spirit and the confirmation of the Father, but he has not been crowned the king. So he and David are in a similar season of life, right? An anointed king who is not yet on the throne. 
And he says, don't you remember that time in David's life where he went in and did a thing that was strictly forbidden? That's because he has the ability to understand that these laws were meant to serve you, not to confine you. Here's what Jesus says specifically. He says in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Right? You, you weren't meant to exist for the sake of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a gift to you. God's laws are a gift to you. They're meant to push you towards who God is. And when they push you away from who God is, you need to rethink what you're doing. He goes on to say in 28, so the son of man, there he uses that title again for himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. He said these rules that you think are so important and are so valuable, I'm not trying to throw those away. I'm just trying to tell you that with the lenses of Jesus who is Lord of the Sabbath, it changes the interpretation. It changes the situation. It changes moment by moment based on who I am and understanding the intent of those laws rather than just the letter of those laws, right? So what's he doing? He's changing their view. He's changing their perspective. And then fifth and final story in Mark chapter three, verse one, it says again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. They're in the synagogue. This is a place of worship. This is a place of community and the people there are preoccupied with the withered, man, withered hand of a man not because of their compassion for him or because of their empathy for him. They're preoccupied with the withered hand of this man because he provides a perfect trap for them to entrap Jesus. When they see him, they don't see his need. They don't see his hurt. They don't see his anguish. What they see is an opportunity for themselves to advance their own agenda and their own cause. So they're watching Jesus closely to see what he'll do with this man with a withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath because in their view, to heal him would also be a violation of the Sabbath. Now it's worth noting that in this story in Mark chapter three, Jesus doesn't technically do anything that is a Sabbath violation, right? Here's, here's the way it goes down. They see this man and they're watching him for an opportunity. Jesus, verse three, said to the man with the withered hand, come here, that's not against the rules. And he said to the people who were watching him, looking for an opportunity to accuse him, he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? It's a simple question. He's like, what, what is the intent of the law? Is the intent of the law life or death? Is the intent of the law good or evil, how do you read it? And they remain silent. Now it's interesting, for, for a, a Jewish crowd, again, they would know that the saving of life trumps everything for the Jewish people, right? The saving and preservation of life trumps everything. So that's actually a very easy question to answer. But they don't answer it because they have an agenda that would not be uh, helped by answering that question the way he's prompted them. So they remain silent when he asks them. It's an easy question to answer and they don't answer it. They remain silent. It says in verse five, Jesus looked around at them with anger. It's one of only just a couple of places where we see Jesus moved with anger. He's moved with anger because of the hardness of their hearts. The hardness of their hearts is a hardness that was provoked by the dissonance between what they knew and what they learned, what they believed, what they thought about themselves, what they thought about their faith, what they thought about a man with a withered hand, what they thought about the synagogue, what they thought about the Sabbath. The dissonance between everything they know and understand and the reality of who Jesus is, that is what froze their hearts up. It angers Jesus. I don't necessarily think he's angry at them. I think he's angry at the way hearts can become hardened and locked into a position because they got the wrong glasses on, right? Jesus says to the man, stretch out your hand. That's also not a Sabbath violation. 
He looked at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. His hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. By the way, the Herodians were not friends with the Pharisees. They were working at opposite positions. And yet they find common ground in their shared hatred of Jesus. They work with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. At the end of the section we're studying today, we get sort of a, a, a wrap-up. It says this in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee to Judea, or, and Judea, from Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. We get this quick summary in the middle of three, which basically says that Jesus, because of the things he's doing, has now got this huge following. There are these people that are coming everywhere because they recognize their own brokenness and because they know he has the power to heal them. At the same time, while he's sort of figuring out how to navigate these crowds we see that, that there are demons who are still in fear. And we studied that last week and talked a little bit about it. But there are, there are demons that are very, very nervous about the presence of the Jesus, right? And in the midst of all of that, what we have are these religious leaders, these people who know who they are and they know what they believe and they know how things have always been done, who are plotting together with their enemies to take Jesus out. All of that's happening at the same time because of the ministry of Jesus. And it has to do with the different lenses that they're wearing, the different things they believe about themselves. Crowds follow him, unclean spirits fear him, but the Pharisees set aside their own biases, their own hatred to join forces with the Herodians against him. In each of these stories, the people are bothered, confused, and angered by Jesus, not just because of what he says or doesn't say, not just because of what he does or doesn't do, but they're frustrated and angry, they're disoriented, they feel that dissonance because who he is and what he says or what he does or doesn't do, it says something about them, right? I want you to see this disorientation. It says something about what they value. It says something about what they believe. It says something about who they are and the way they're approaching their life. If they're gonna follow this Jesus, it means they're gonna have to rethink some of the things that they're not thinking about. They're gonna have to do some things that they're not currently doing. He is changing the way they see themselves and their faith and their world, the way they see other people. He's trying to change their glasses and they like the glasses they have, right? It's so easy to settle into what you think you know. It's so easy to settle into who you are, to what you believe. We, we just want things to be easy, right? It's why we like boxes and we like quizzes. Tell me what's gonna be on the quiz. I can memorize the answers and I can get 100 on the quiz. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He's asking them to think about what they believe. He's asking them to think about who he is, to think about what the Old Testament law said and what its intent was. He's asking them to recognize that following God is actually dynamic, not static. It's not a thing where you like sign on a dotted line and you've got it all figured out and then you just coast the rest of your life. No, in every given moment, you're having to pay attention to what God is doing, right? It challenges what they believe and who they are and what they think they know. Right? It would require them to follow him, would require them to change. And <laughs> we don't like to change. It's hard to change. Change means that we have to admit that who we were yesterday wasn't good enough or what we thought last week maybe needs to be revised. We don't want to do that because it's humbling and kind of embarrassing sometimes. We would much rather fight to stay exactly who we are. We would much rather fight to wear our same old glasses. 
And the key in what Jesus is doing in all of these stories, he's trying to change their perspective. And actually, in those verses I talked about already in Mark 2, 18 through 22, is where he gives us the key to unlock the way to read these things. And here's what Jesus points out in these. Remember, uh, his, his disciples were not fasting. So Jesus gives them these three stories. Let's read these together. This is verse 19 through 22. Jesus said to the people who were complaining about his disciples' lack of fasting, he said, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. What Jesus is explaining is that situations make a difference. Timing makes a difference. That following Jesus is not static. It's not all the same in every room you walk into. That every place you go is going to require you to look fresh at who Jesus is and what he would do and what he would say and where he would go and what it means in this particular day and age at this particular time. You do not have the ability to go, yeah, you know what? I put my faith in Jesus and I never have to think about it again. My faith is all secure. The reality is that things change. Following Jesus is dynamic and that's the way it's supposed to be. He is trying to open their eyes to the fact that he will reshape the way they see themselves and the way they see what they believe and the way they see their neighbors, that he's gonna change that. And he says, my disciples have done the right thing because yeah, they know what the fasting traditions are. They know the good guys fast on Mondays and Thursdays, but they have changed their approach because they're looking at me, not at what everybody else is doing. They're paying attention to my presence among them, not what everybody else says you gotta do to be a good, holy person, right? That's the first story he tells. The second two are very similar, and he might be talking here about, about patches in clothing and wine because of the wedding illustration, so you wouldn't wanna wear a coat with holes in it to a wedding, and you wouldn't wanna have your wineskins explode at your wedding either. So it could be that's where his mind goes, but the illustrations basically say the same thing. He says if you have an old coat, you can't sew it up, a patch, you can't, you can't sew a patch into a hole in an old coat with unshrunken cloth because if you do, when you wash it, that sucker's gonna shrink and then the tear's gonna get worse than it was before. Similarly, you can't put new wine into an old fragile wineskin because as it ferments and the gases go, that thing is gonna stretch and break and you lose both the wine and the wineskin. He says, no one sews, this is verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Here's what Jesus is saying. I'm not gonna be a new patch on your old way of doing things. I'm not gonna be new wine for you to pour into your old brittle wineskins. That's not gonna work. That's what you want me to be because you want to just use your old wineskins and you wanna wear your old coat. But I just am not a new patch and I just am not new wine that can be kept in old wineskins. That's just not what the kingdom of God is like. It's very similar to what he says to Nicodemus, right? In John chapter three, you remember that story? Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, hey, you know, me and my religious friends, we've been watching you. We see you doing some good stuff. We can tell that you must be from God, you know, because we got our radar up on that sort of thing. And Jesus kind of chuckles and he's like, nah, sorry to burst your bubble, Nicodemus, but you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born all over again. What's he saying? The new is not compatible with the old. This thing I'm bringing is not just a patch to put on your old jacket. It's not just new wine to dump into your old skins. It won't work like that. I'm bringing something wholly new. What you need is a new jacket. And what you need are new wineskins because you're gonna want this new wine, right? Because you're gonna want this new thing I'm bringing and it won't work. Jesus and his ministry cannot be conformed to the old expectations, right? Right? 
Jesus cannot be conformed to fit the expectations of the old or to hold it back. It's interesting, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 52, um, when, when he's just given a bunch of illustrations about the kingdom of God, um, he says in Matthew 13, 52, he said to them, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. He's not throwing out all of the old, right? He says elsewhere that he hasn't come to get rid of the law, but he's come to fulfill it. But what he's brought is something wholly new. And he says the, the people who've been trained for the kingdom are the ones who can understand where there is treasure in the old and where there is treasure in the new, right? You have to be able to discern these things. It's interesting in, in the book of Matthew also when Jesus talks about these the same things, the same stories when they're related in Matthew, he always talks about the fact that God desires mercy rather than sacrifice, which is an Old Testament quote. Let me just give you a couple of these. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, after he uh, is, has been accused of eating with sinners and tax collectors, Jesus says the thing about, you know, the fact that the sick need a doctor. And then he says in Matthew 9, 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous but sinners. What he's saying is, I'm looking for people who will love rather than just hold on to their old jackets or their old glasses, right? And he does that in this same story where he's being accused, like, why would you eat with wicked people, Right? In Matthew chapter 12, verse 7, when he's being accused of doing things he shouldn't do on the Sabbath, he says to them in that time, he says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. He's like, if you had the lenses to understand that I am a fulfillment of your Old Testament law, but I'm not a patch on your old jacket, this wouldn't have bothered you the way it does. He's quoting there from passages like Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1 that say, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they did not know that they are doing evil, right? I told you at the very beginning, put yourself in the shoes of the people who were disoriented and frustrated by Jesus. Those aren't people who are trying to do evil. They're just people who are now being forced to think like, maybe who I am and what I think and what I've done isn't Jesus's way, right? And that's troubling, it says, come to the house of God to listen rather than to speak. Similarly, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 says from God, he says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He doesn't say burnt offerings are no good. He doesn't say sacrifice has no place. He says there is a lens that's more important than just sort of fitting into your rules. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, we've looked at this before. Samuel says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Interesting, in, uh, in Mark chapter 12, and we'll get there eventually, and I'm, and I'm sort of winding this up here, but in Mark chapter 12, there are some scribes and Pharisees that come to Jesus and they say, what's the most important commandment? I feel like we talk about this almost every week, right? And uh, Jesus' answer is, well, you have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you have to love your neighbor as yourself, if you get those two right, you've figured it all out. And interestingly, in the Mark telling of that story, in Mark chapter 12, verse 32, there's a scribe that's sitting there when Jesus says it, and here's what the scribe says. He says, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to that scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. 
I love that, right? Because what are we seeing? Right there in front of us, we're seeing a scribe that's hearing Jesus say, hey, it's not that your rules don't matter, but what matters is you have to see your world and you have to see God and you have to see your religion in light of who Jesus actually is. I need to be your new glasses, Jesus is saying. And there's a scribe sitting in the crowd who's like, I get it, right? I get it that loving God and loving other people is more important than all of our rules and regulations. And Jesus goes, bing, 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 right? $100 answer. And he doesn't even tell him like, oh, you're in the kingdom of God. He says you're getting close to the kingdom of God, right? So take that how you want. I love that affirmation from Jesus. He's saying sometimes you're gonna find me disorienting and you're gonna find me frustrating and you're gonna find, you're gonna find that there's this pull because you're just trying to, you're trying to put me on your old jacket like a patch. You're trying to pour my new wine into your old brittle wineskins and you're feeling the stretch and the pull and sooner or later you're gonna explode because your old wineskins weren't meant to contain this thing. They did what they were supposed to do when they were supposed to do it, but I'm bringing something new and you have to put on my, my glass. And Jesus doesn't give us new glasses again. He is the lens in which we look at all these things. He is the interpretation for each of these settings. And so for us this morning, the challenge is this. I asked you at the very beginning to put yourself in the shoes of the people who are concerned by what Jesus is doing and ask yourself, are you willing to let Jesus make you a new wineskin, right? Are you willing to be a new wineskin? And I don't mean that he'll make you one and give it to you. I mean, are you willing to be a wineskin that can contain the new wine of Christ? Or are, you, or are you pretty comfortable with who you are and what you think and where you've been and you really don't want anybody to mess with that? If that's your, your feeling, then you're, you're gonna feel the push and pull of Jesus the entire time you try to follow him. But the moment that you say, I'm gonna live my life interpreting who I am and what I believe through the lens of who Christ is, then all of a sudden there's room in that new wineskin for the new wine of Christ. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would stir in us a hunger to see our world through the lens that is you, the Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who sees the withered hand more than he sees the rules and regulations. Would you help us not only to see you well, but would you, would you help us to live our lives the way that you modeled for us? Would we be hungry to be these new wineskins, I pray. In Jesus' name, and for his glory, amen.